let's do it. Yeah, hello everyone. I am Dr. Janelle Pfeiffer. I'm a psychologist and um, a professor at Agnes Scott College. I am here with an incredible panel, an incredible group of black women scientists and researchers. And we're gonna have this conversation about the COVID-19 vaccine. We're gonna talk a little bit about the history of the vaccine, um, some of the hesitancy um, and questions that people have and dive into some of the myths and facts about the vaccine today. But before we do that, let's, uh, let's get to know everyone who's gonna be on the panel and take a moment to do some introductions. Let's start off with you, Dr. Bradley. Um, will you please introduce yourself and your background? Sure. So I'm Dr. Erin Bradley. I'm the Linda Lentz Hubert Assistant Professor of Public Health. Um, I currently teach biostatistics and epidemiology courses at Agnes. I'm a public health researcher, a behavioral scientist by training, and the focus of my work is health equity and health disparities. Wonderful. Thank you for being here. All right. How about you, Dr. Jernigan DeWesse? Um, can you introduce us to you? Sure. My name is Dr. Miriam Jernigan-Nowesi. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Agnes Scott College. I'm also a licensed psychologist uh, and clinical researcher whose research really focuses on thinking about the intersections uh, between mental health and physical health outcomes uh, with a specific emphasis on uh, investigating and working with underrepresented communities. Awesome. Thank you. And last but most certainly not least, Dr. Dutton, let's go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Dr. Stacey Dutton. I'm an assistant professor in the biology department, and I also serve in the neuroscience program. My research focuses on ion channel mutations that have been identified in epilepsy, as well as I studied um, sexual biology. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for being here. Let's get to it. And we're gonna talk a little bit as we're going through about our connections to the um, COVID-19 vaccine and how, um, how these different perspectives, the different expertise that's present right now, um, how that informs how we think about the vaccine. Um, so let's start off with you, Erin. Can you tell us from your perspective uh, in public health and with your expertise in health equity, some people seem to be really hesitant about the COVID-19 vaccine um, and particularly because it happens so quick. I mean, they even have this name like Operation Warp Speed and people are not trusting that. So can you talk about the science behind the vaccine and how this whole process of getting it approved happened so quickly? Sure. Yeah, so I know um, Dr. Dutton is going to talk about the details of the science behind the vaccine, but as far as the approval process is concerned, um, I know that is one of the things that really concerns a lot of people. Um, even people who would be vaccinated otherwise were just like, oh, I feel like we might have skipped some steps here. Um, and I think what's important to note is that there was a strong sense of urgency um, to be able to develop this vaccine. We had a public health emergency situation, a global um, emergency. And so people around the world were highly motivated to develop a vaccine um, for COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So population health, of course, was a priority, but, you know, there's also an element of profit here as well, right? So from a profit standpoint, if you're able to develop this um, in-demand vaccine, there was some motivation uh, from that aspect as well. Um, so you know, companies spared no expense. They invested what was needed to make it happen. 
Um, also, I think it's important to note that they weren't necessarily starting from scratch, right? Um, SARS-CoV-2 <laughs> is another coronavirus within the family of coronaviruses. Um, the flu is also a part of that, influenza. So when you already have somewhat of a background, you're, you're really building on prior knowledge. So um, that personally, I feel less concerned a, a, about the speed with which it occurred. But also really a lot of the bureaucratic administrative delays were um, removed. Mm -hmm. So steps weren't skipped in the development of it, but the timeline was accelerated. So whereas you may have a review process that normally takes um, you know, in order to get through the entire system of review, um, if it's not prioritized, it'll come behind other uh, pending applications, right? But when you have a high priority, you push it to the front of the line. So you have everybody focusing their attention on this particular thing, um, the, the process can be accelerated, again, without, without skipping any steps. Oh, that was really helpful um, because I definitely know at least my one of my family mottos was always like, if you're doing something fast, you're not doing it well. But like when you put it in that context of thinking about how you have all of the resources of the in the world, the best scientists working on it and a pretty significant motivator of money, which we know can make things move more quickly, that this was something that was prioritized and hopefully will shape the way that we approach different vaccine developments in the future. Now that we've seen how to do this more effectively, more efficiently, um, to be able to really get out there and help people. Yeah, thank Absolutely. you. Yeah. Um, so Miriam, uh, can you talk to us a little bit more about why do you think that people are hesitant to get the vaccine? Why are they a little bit not so sure um, about getting the vaccine? And then what do you think should be done to help uh, address those worries um, and help people feel more comfortable? I think there are multiple factors um, to take into consideration, especially thinking about, you know, my background um, in psychology, as you were asking the question, it reminded me of the importance of communication and language. So if we just go back mm -hmm. to the introduction of the notion of, right, the coronavirus, the novel, right, mm -hmm. uh, coronavirus, I think is what was critically important. For a lot of folks, I think the information that Aaron provided wasn't necessarily things that they were privy to, right? So I think the thought for many individuals was that this is new. Right, if, especially if you don't have maybe a science background or public health background or knowledge with regard to coronaviruses, for example, it's the idea that there's something new that's affecting the world and it's happening quickly and it's deadly, you know, in some cases. And so how is it? It goes back to that timing piece. How is it, right, that we're now able to develop a vaccine that will assist in this process? So I think for, for many individuals, the idea that there was a lack of consistent, comprehensive information in ways that you know, the masses could really ingest, right, and access the information is one piece um, with regard to thinking about where we are now and the notion that now here's a vaccine, right, and we want individuals to take it. I think the other thing to, you know, take into consideration with the idea of hesitancy is, again, we have to look at the broader context, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea um, with regard to relationship to, right, science, to the health community, et cetera. And in particular, as we look at some of the commentary uh, regarding, you know, disparities in, in communities' perceptions about and maybe hesitancy with taking the vaccine, I'll use the Black community as one example, right? Mm -hmm. So some of the media and news reports, as well as sentiments, quite frankly, shared by individuals that may be more hesitant, um, hypervigilant, right, with regard to thinking about taking a vaccine, 
is not a contextual, right? It, it is, it's based on a history, right? In relationship to the scientific community as well as the health community. And so we also mm -hmm. have to factor in, right? The history of individuals with regard to, you know, whether that's being exploited, um, abused quite frankly, right? By, by the medical community and all of the history that we have um, documented history relative to that is going to inform, right, the intergenerational stories that get told, and thus, you know, some of the reluctance to understand um, what's happening uh, with regard to the vaccine currently, but also sort of understand and question whether or not the medical community has the best interests of, right, underrepresented communities and marginalized communities at heart. Even go back to the conversation with regard to COVID in general, we started to see some of the racial disparities, right, with regard to prevalence and impact. Um, I would imagine there were individuals that said, you know, yes, we knew that this information was sometimes reported, but there didn't seem to be an investment nationally with regard to addressing the disparities in those communities. So now why should we mm. take a vaccine, right? So now that the vaccine is available, right, what does that mean with regard to thinking about, you know, associations that they may have and, and quite frankly, direct experiences that many communities of color report when interacting with the medical community. So it's not surprising to me. And I think the medical community uh, and the scientific community needs to pause, right? And as opposed to having conversations about we need to get X community, right, invested and take the vaccine, we have to validate, acknowledge the history that's there and understand how we're communicating with folks, how we're interacting with individuals and how we're acknowledging that history in an effort to build trust that has been violated. Oh, yes. I, there's so much there and I want to make sure that I like, I just, there's just so much good there, but thinking about, just like you said, this history and thinking of the context that we're coming in and being able to slow down, hit that pause button to be able to trust, like to validate, to hear those concerns and to acknowledge before moving right forward to, we need to get you to just get a shot in your arm, right? Like that you need to be able to make sure that there's space to hear all of these really valid, really real historic ills. I mean, I wonder from the public health perspective, um, do, you like, do you have similar knowledge and experience of distrust of public health initiatives, Erin, um, that, like, that Miriam was talking about with the scientific and the healthcare communities? Yeah, so the interesting thing about the pandemic is that it really is just magnified or highlighted issues that already existed. Um, distrust of medicine and public health is not a new thing. Um, we've seen it for lots of other diseases and conditions. Um, I, I worked in HIV or have been um, in HIV prevention and care for um, about 20 years now, um, health education and research. And we've seen some of the very same things occur when it comes to um, conspiracy theories or misinformation, disinformation sometimes um, about HIV. Um, and a lot of it, again, is rooted in very real things that took place. And just as an example, uh, the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male is what is usually referred to. Um, and that it lasted for four decades, right? This happened... Um, out in the open, it was a study sponsored by the, the, by the federal government, right? <laughs> so it, it did a lot of damage um, and very little work has been done to undo those things. So then when we have a public health emergency, it's just layered on top of all of our existing issues, right? So one of the things, especially mm -hmm. when I'm engaging with people about Tuskegee specifically, one of the contextual pieces that is incredibly important is that 
the major ethical issue was that once penicillin was available and known to be an effective treatment for syphilis, the men in the study were denied access to it. So when I think about the Tuskegee syphilis study, I don't think about um, you know, taking a vaccine and being injected with something because the men weren't given syphilis, they already had syphilis and the researchers were watching it unfold over time to see what the effect was in the body. Um, but in that they were denied access to treatment. So when I hear that there's an effective vaccine that's available and that um, black communities uh, in, in lots of different states are, we have people skipping the line ahead of, of these communities who may be prioritized that to me feels more like Tuskegee, right? Where there's this effective um, medication or treatment, or in this case, a vaccine, and we're seeing Black people have less access than they should. You know, uh, Aaron, as you were talking, it also reminded me of, you know, sort of looking at, right, thinking about information um, as on a continuum. And I think that there are also, it reminded me of conversations from individuals who are invested and have been maybe sort of reading or have a little bit uh, more knowledge or even more knowledge with regard to thinking about um, the science, for example, or reading, you know, reports relative to clinical trials. One of the, the questions or at least uh, points of concern that I've heard from individuals as well uh, are the data that come from the clinical trials, you know, for example. So for example, for individuals that may have some awareness with regard to the history, right, of the, the field of healthcare as well as science, there's been the critique that oftentimes clinical trials don't include, right, um, equitable numbers of, you know, people of color, for example. And so mm -hmm. one of the concerns I remember early on as well is for the clinical trials that informed, right, current uh, vaccines that are available, how diverse were those samples is, is another question that I heard individuals talking about that factor into this idea um, of again, what information we have access to versus not. And so if, for example, there was a clinical trial where there weren't people of color, how do we know, right? What the side effects might be as people attempt to make sense of, right? The sort of biological mechanisms and, and thinking about the vaccine. So that is, as Dr. Bradley was talking also reminded me of, you know, let's think about this on a continuum with regard to just history, context information, but even for those folks that are trying to find and sort of take in information, still having questions and still having enough uh, critical thinking available in an effort to say, okay, so what science has informed, right, the vaccines that we have available and are, have they been inclusive in a meaningful way? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know that was a question for my mom, like that she was like, well, who was in this sample? was it representative? Because there is not like these, there, there are some of the, like the different, the different considerations of like, yeah, was there, was there appropriate representation? And that was something that I found really helpful. And I think Dr. Bradley broke it down for me when we were looking through the emergency use authorization and some of the clinical trial data. And I do think that there's such an opportunity for public health to make that clinical trial data accessible and readable and um, engaging for a broad group of people. Cause yeah, you know, I have a PhD and I was reading it, trying to make sense of it and I needed Aaron to help me out, right? And then being able to communicate it to my mom in a way that she really could hear and understand when there's such a history of pain in the community with um, distrust. Like it's not, like these things happened within my mom's lifetime. Like, mm -hmm. and it has not fundamentally changed. If outside of these emergency situations, if we would really just work to rebuild that trust, um, 
we would be in a much better place when we're trying to engage um, minority populations in particular um, in the research aspects of it. I did want to say, I forgot to say this a, a minute ago, but for people who are concerned, um, not wanting to be guinea pigs, so to speak, I've heard that a lot. Um, we are through the, what would be considered the experimentation stages, if you will. So phases one through three of the clinical trials. And now this is, we're in a different phase now where there's really um, safe and effective vaccines that are available um, that are not being tried out on our community, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Established data for safety and efficacy, now just monitoring for anything unexpected long-term. Erin, out of curiosity, what are the markers for what would be considered the monitoring? Is it six, six months and 12 months? I mean, I imagine there'll be continued monitoring, but just for my own for information, I imagine others, because that is a concern that I've heard from folks. So what are the long-term implications? I suppose because this is such a, a major situation um, that the monitoring will be very long-term, um, but I can't, I can't speak to the specific time frame. I'm not sure if Stacey is aware of the time frame. What I, I did read that um, this is an ongoing, um, the phase four is at least ongoing until 2022. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I yeah. think it may extend beyond, <laughs> beyond <laughs> that as well, just to have a robust body of evidence um, where people's fears are, are, are put to rest. Mm. Yeah, and one of the things for me, like, that's been kind of cool is hearing about the fact that, like, that follow-up when people get the vaccine, um, like, they actually follow up with everybody who's gotten the vaccine. They have the option to, like, text in and submit what they're experiencing, any symptoms, any adverse effects, and all of that is reported. So this isn't something that's hidden. And that's one of the good things about like social media has some good things, social media has some bad things, but people, they can't really silence people because there's such a huge group of people who can talk about what their experience is, they're monitoring, looking for these adverse um, effects, and that that is uh, you know, public information. So kind of shifting gears, I wanna go and hear from Dr. Dutton, um, if you can talk about this whole mRNA thing is new for so many, I can't even say it, mRNA is so new for many people. Um, can you talk to us as a biologist about how that works? And especially I know folks are a little worried that it's gonna change their DNA. Yeah, can you talk to us about mRNA? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I wanna first off start by saying that um, you know, because of a lot of the vaccine hesitancy, which is valid, that has become, it has resulted in a breeding ground for a lot of just misinformation in regards to like how the science of this works. And, you know, the reality is, is that if you're not a science nerd, if you're not, you know, you wouldn't be well-versed in number one, the technology, right? And number two, you wouldn't really know much about these terms, right? Which is fine, right? Because not everybody are scientists, right? Now everybody are into this nerdy stuff. I happen to be one of them. So <laughs> nevertheless, what is mRNA? Okay. Um, and mRNA is basically an intermediate substance or molecule between DNA and proteins. Okay. And I'm going to back that up really quickly because um, I think in order for you to get an understanding of it, you have to kind of get a good framing for why it is important. All right, so there are four major structural components that are in living organisms. And so you'll have your lipids, which is your fats, 
your carbohydrates, which are your sugars, your proteins, which, you know, every, most people are familiar with your proteins, but they're like the building box for a lot of your muscular tissues and your structural elements. And then lastly, you have your nucleic acids, okay? And nucleic acids consist of your DNA, which is, you know, your genes, right? They're the building blocks of your genes. But then also another type of nucleic acid is RNA, okay? And RNA, very important structural component because when we focus on a particular topic called the central dogma of molecular biology, it states that, or it's an actual um, known process, that DNA is transcribed into RNA and RNA is transcribed or translated more so into protein. So it's a, it's a multi-step process in which you get DNA being made into RNA being, and then the RNA being made into protein. Okay. And I like to use the analogy that your proteins, which is like, you know, all of the physical structures, that is the physical manifestation of your genes. Okay. But in order to get to proteins, you got to make RNA. Okay. And the particular type of RNA that is the intermediate between DNA and proteins are your messenger RNA or mRNA, which M is short for messenger. Okay. Because they're the message or the, the sequence message of the genes, your DNA, okay? So that's what the M is, it's your message, right? And so um, this technology for using mRNA as vaccines is new. Yes, it's new, but it's been in development since the 90s, right? Um, there has been a, several groups who had been working on this and had some trouble, but were able to work through it as you know most researchers do. And actually, um, we're pretty close to using this technology at one point in time in history, but that was paused. And um, as Dr. Bradley mentioned earlier, the coronaviruses is one of the most well-studied categories of viruses. And so this pandemic had really, the use, the, the, the occurrence of the coronavirus in this pandemic had really lended itself really, really well for the treatment with using messenger RNA sequence. And so with that, to address your specific question about, um, you know, will it mess up your DNA? No. And that is because the way the central dogma goes, it's a linear process. It does not go backwards. It only goes forward. It says again that DNA makes the messenger RNA and messenger RNA makes the protein, okay? And so therefore you won't get a situation where the messenger RNA penetrates the nucleus of your cell and modifies the DNA. It only goes forward. And just to give you a little bit more context on like how this messenger RNA vaccine is different from traditional vaccines or the, the vaccines that most of us are more commonly familiar with is that with the traditional vaccines, the mechanism is usually you're given even a, a weakened vaccine, um, I'm sorry, a weakened virus or attenuated virus. And you know, the, you're given that via an injection and that triggers an immune response ultimately leading to the production of antibodies so that if you're ever in contact with the pathogen, you're able to mount an immune response and it provides a level of protection, right? So that's usually how it works. So some um, of the companies who are in the race, you know, to produce vaccines have taken that more traditional response or approach to it. But the companies or the two um, pharmaceutical companies that have been approved for usage in the USA, which is Moderna, and Pfizer, they took a more um, advanced approach using this um, newly developed, newly sophisticated method of using messenger RNA sequence. And so what do they do? If you have ever seen an image of the coronavirus, 
Um, so like a structural image of it. Basically, it's a circle with a lot of spikes on it. And so you probably heard in the media, they talk about spike proteins and all of that. When they talk about the spike proteins, they're referring to the spike conformation that's on the surface of this virus. And so those spikes are really important because those spikes the virus uses to latch on to a receptor that's on the surface of our cells. And so by latching onto that surface, it's able to enter into our cells multiply and do all the things that viruses do, okay? Now, the thing about the messenger RNA vaccines is that they took, or the scientists who developed this, they took the messenger RNA sequence of only a spike protein and put that in a nanoparticle, a uh, lipid nano nanoparticle. So essentially just a ball of fat. I want to make it simplistic. So just a ball of fat, they put this messenger RNA sequence in. And some of the properties of our cells allow so that some fats can readily pass through it. And so therefore that results in a situation where the messenger RNA sequence is able to readily pass through our cells and enter into the um, machinery aspect of our cells. And so when we see this messenger RNA sequence, it triggers our body to now pick up in the central dogma from the steps of the messenger RNA sequence and go ahead and start making a protein this messenger RNA sequence encodes for the production of the spike protein. So in our cell, what's gonna happen is that you're gonna start producing the spike protein. That spike protein goes onto the surface of our cells, right? Our cells or our, um, our cells in our body that helps with um, protecting us and surveying this, the environment to ensure that we don't have any foreign pathogens. We'll see that, oh my goodness, there's a cell in my body that has this protein on the surface that I've never seen before. And so that's gonna trigger your immune system to go on and mount a response attacking that cell and then ultimately resulting in the production of antibodies so that if you ever come in contact with that pathogen again, you now have the um, appropriate antibodies to protect you from it. And so in that regard, um, because of this technology, which I really think is going to shape of the way that a lot of vaccine development is going to move into, these vaccines actually have a 90, about a 95% efficacy with protecting you against um, severe cases of COVID-19, which is phenomenal. Um, whereas some of the more traditional ones, some of the preliminary studies with that show a lower level of efficacy. Um, so, I mean, I'm, you know, though this is a horrible situation, the science behind this is something that has been very exciting to read and to keep abreast on. Um, so, yeah, any, anything I want you want me to clarify in that regard or? Uh, this was so helpful. I mean, I don't, I don't know if y'all know this about Dr. Dutton. They call her the fly scientist for a reason, like this is it. Um, <laughs> That was breaking it down um, was really helpful to understand kind of that, how that process works and how it mounts this um, um, like this antibody and immune system response that prepares you to be able to um, to, to to fight off um, COVID if you're exposed to it. Um, any questions? Do y'all have any clarifying questions um, for Dr. Dutton? I'm sort of curious. It's not really a clarifying question because I do feel like the breakdown for me is very helpful. <laughs> um, but uh, when we talk about 95% efficacy, do you have any other comparisons, for example, that might be helpful? So if you think about, for example, like an influenza vaccine, yeah, right? is there any uh, efficacy data that would be helpful for folks to understand that, yeah. you know, that, that 95% is really high? Right? No, I think that's a great point. 
because when you look at influenza or just the efficacy of just flu vaccines, it's actually relatively low. You know, you're looking at about the 40 to 50% range and it varies from year to year, depending upon the severity of the flu vaccine, of the, the flu season of that year. So it's actually relatively low, but even if you have received the flu vaccine, there's a level of being able to protect you or be able to better fight off the flu if you still get it. Um, so in comparison to that, yes, this is quite remarkable. Um, and like I said, mm -hmm. With, compared to some of the more traditional vaccines that are um, being developed against COVID um, or against the SARS virus, um, they're not as effective as the mRNA vaccines. So again, um, and just to expound on that just a little bit more, I know you all have heard about the variants, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's a, that's, a, that's a situation to be concerned with. Um, so there are about 1,500 variants, and by variants, just meaning these are mutations in the genomic sequence of the virus that has resulted in situations where the virus is a little bit more transmissible. So it's easier to spread mm -hmm. from person to person. Um, and there are some particular strains that are of concern. So there's one that um, came out of South Africa. There's one that came out of Brazil. There's one that's out of the UK um, that were of concern. And so um, in the UK, they have a couple of more vaccines that have been um, approved by their system that have not been approved there. But um, there has been some early data to indicate that those vaccines may not be as effective <laughs> against the vaccine. But there has been some preliminary data that says that Moderna and Pfizer's vaccine will possibly be able to protect us against some of these more aggressive variants that are out there. But again, I think it's because mm -hmm. of the mechanism that these particular um, vaccines used by the usage of the messenger RNA that makes them just a little bit better in providing protection. And so, yeah, these are of mm. concern because essentially what has happened is that in places where the outbreak has not been properly mitigated, it has created a situation where the virus has just been in the environment for too long and has provided the opportunity, has put the evolutionary pressure on it so that it can mutate. I mean, that's what happens. And, um, you know, one of the core principles of evolution is like the survival of the fittest, right? So the ones that have created a mutation that uh, results in a way that it's able to transmit easier and transmit across more people, it has been able to thrive and survive. And so, you know, it was just a matter of time before this was going to become a concern. And so the good news though, is that some preliminary data has shown that Moderna and, and Pfizer does provide a level of protection against them. Um, but again, time is still on our, well, time we're running against time in this regard, because if these, mm. if this virus is still running around unmitigated, it's going to create a situation where it's going to continue to mutate and, you know, could make the situation worse. Mm. Oh, I mean, I want I want Aaron to talk more about that because this question, there's the people who are like, if it's gonna work, let me just sit back and wait until there's, you know, several months go by and I'll just wait until I have long lasting proof that this vaccine is gonna work, right? There's no rush. I can just let's let's see what happens with the population and then I'll come back in and get it after a while. So can you talk to us from a public health perspective about the variants and that that point that Dr. Dutton said that time really isn't on our side if this is running around and mutating unchecked. Yeah, I, that point about time is <laughs> it's so important. 
we really are in a race against time. The mitigation strategies are incredibly important. Um, vaccines will never completely resolve an outbreak. That's, that's not gonna happen. Vaccines are an important tool um, as part of a larger strategy. So vaccines will help us slow the spread, but we still have to do our part. Yes, so that, that time is of the essence for sure. Um, I, I wanted to go back to something that Dr. Dutton said a moment ago that I know that I didn't have clarity on, so I can, was hoping that you can speak to this 95% um, efficacy. Um, does that mean that you kind of are rolling the die there? You have like a 5% chance that even after the vaccine, you could still get it? Um, can you talk to us about that, Stacy? Yeah, so absolutely. So the 5% just basically said that of the 100% of folks that took the vaccine, only 5% of them developed a mild case of COVID-19. So no one who was in the um, uh, actual uh, vaccine given trial didn't die. None of them died. None of them had severe covid some of them, though, 5% did have um, mild levels of COVID. But yeah, so the 95 just basically mean that um, 5% of them had mild cases of COVID-19 and nobody died from the whole thing. Am that's, I freezing up? I mean, that's important. Like, No, you're good. But yeah, I feel like what you said really stands out to me that 100% of these people did not get severe cases. Yeah. So right. we're talking like coronavirus, if I'm gonna get a little sick, I'm not that worried about it. But the fact that we're keeping like 100% of the people right. who are in these studies, nobody was getting a severe case or dying from it. That's right. huge. Yeah, like, it, it I'm is. Really, I appreciate you telling me that. And so there's a few mm -hmm. things that um, it's important to note though, is that though it was able to protect you from exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't be a host or a carrier of the virus. And this is an important thing to note, because even though as we, you know, push to get more, more people vaccinated, you're probably going to be wearing masks for a while until there's stronger data that provides information on whether or not the vaccine reduces transmission, which is an important and a critical mm -hmm. part of this whole situation. And so, yeah, though, you know, we saw a huge efficacy and being able to protect you, it's unclear if you can still be a host and shed barrel loads and give it to others. So that's important to know. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. well, I mean, and part of, I'm sorry, yeah. No, I was gonna say, I appreciate that as we think about, I certainly have heard in, com you know, in conversation as folks, you know, debate or talk about the vaccine, it's, you know, if I get vaccinated, then, you know, off with the mask. Right. Um, so reiterate to folks, again, communication mm -hmm. information from a population health, public health perspective, um, the importance of continuing, as you uh, also noted, Dr. Pfeiffer, you know, and, and Dr. Bradley, the social distancing, keeping our masks, those protocols will be critically important as we move forward, because I certainly have had heard folks, you know, sort of think that, you know, vaccine is coming and then, I'm good, so I can go wherever, not wear a mask, those sorts of things. Yeah. And that you bring up a, a really good point. And that, that has been an issue from the very beginning. Um, risk communication, uh, the lack of a unified message. If we are ever gonna be effective, and even when we talk about um, health equity in regards to specific communities, you need the right message, the right messenger, and the right medium. And if you have the right message, it's something that's going to be clear and concise, something that people can remember. 
um, something that people understand, spoken or written in plain language, but there has to be a unified message, right? You tailor it for specific groups. So where it resonates with people um, based on their values and their lived experiences, yes, but there's this common thread, right? Where we have a national strategy <laughs> for communication, where there is a singular message that's delivered through different messengers and different media um, and tailored in that way for specific communities, but we have to be saying the same thing. And I think one of the major issues, especially very early on um, in the pandemic was the lack of, of a unified <laughs> central message that was easy to understand. I think um, also part of what uh, Dr. Dutton was saying a minute ago about the, the, the science is going to continue to, to grow, to evolve, right? As we learn more, we'll add more information um, and, and communicating in ways with people where you're explaining constantly, this is what we know right now and reiterating what we already know. So just reinforcing those messages. So here's what we've been saying as a reminder, and then here's the new information and expect that over time we'll continue to learn more and we'll update you, right? Rather than saying like, this is it. And then it seems to be written in stone. And then when you expand that or extend on it because new information has been made available, people say you lied or that you're showing mixed messages now. And it's like, that's not always the case. Now that absolutely did happen in the very beginning. I completely acknowledge that. Um, with discouragement of mask use, there wasn't enough data to know whether masks were effective or not. But instead of saying, this is what we know today, and stay tuned for more information, there was kind of a line drawn in the sand. And that caused people to latch on to that, to be fixated with that information. So there was no room to grow for additional information. So again, I think to the extent that we can have a unified message that it is delivered in um, appropriate ways, tailored for specific communities through trusted people um, with anything we've seen that's been effective. When you engage community partners, those grassroots, organi grassroots organizations, those community-based organizations, they know what their communities need. They know who are the gatekeepers. <laughs> they know who people listen to. They know the best ways to communicate um, and to bring them to the table um, and allow them to lead those efforts like giving them the resources that they need, answering their questions, providing information, things like that, so that they can be effective in reaching their own communities, we really will be able to do a much better job. But the, the fact that chaos abounds when it comes to information right now and that anybody can say anything and everybody has a platform that is, you know, deemed with the same amount of credibility or to have the same amount of credibility despite fight some of those voices lacking any expertise whatsoever um, to speak on a particular topic. If we can get a hold of that, um, I think that'll help a lot of people. Because I know there are plenty of people who do, who are seeking information, but really just can't make sense of everything that's out there. So yeah, if we can have a unified <laughs> national strategy <laughs> with messaging and an approach that engages community partners, and we are working in, in the existing infrastructures for sharing information, um, I think we'll have a better chance of, of alleviating the frustration um, of a good portion of the population who wants to do the right or the healthy thing, but really doesn't know what that is at, at any given point. 
That is, that is such a good point, kind of talking about what, um, and being able to acknowledge the mistakes that were made so that we can learn and move forward. And I think about what both Dr. Bradley and Dr. Dutton, you have said about the process of science, learning more information and being open with, with folks that this is the scientific process and it doesn't mean that something's going wrong, right? Um, uh, Dr. Dutton and Dr. Bradley said really stood out for me that being able to, to communicate effectively and really acknowledge the scientific process is iterative, that that is that message of how you said that, Dr. Bradley, this is what we know now, and we'll check back with you as we learn more, makes such good sense that this is something that's evolving and is going to change, but that we have a unified message and a unified way to reach the communities where they are. I really love that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's important because I think in the absence of that, we see what's happening, right? It, folks kind of go back to the, the message or the assumption, the confirmation, right, <laughs> of their thoughts of, you know, sort of mistrust and, you know, are they telling the truth? If, you know, the messaging changes, right, if that's sort of where we're starting and then we have those experiences without the messaging of this is where we are now, we'll check back in with you, right? It sort of leads to confirmation bias for a lot of folks. And it's like, see, I told you. You know, mm -hmm. as opposed to really feeling mm -hmm. informed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I'm at this point. I'm hearing that the science is incredible. Like that, this is such a huge innovation. I learned so much from Dr. Dutton. I'm hearing about the history um, that got us here and some of the really valid concerns. And then thinking about yeah, what's going to need to happen even after the vaccine is, is there. We can't just rip off our vaccine, stop washing our hands, right? Um, so this is really helpful information. Let's say I'm ready, like I'm ready to, to put my arm out, get this vaccine, right? I feel like much more confident, but what about these side effects? Like, so what do, you, what do we know about the side effects um, and what should people be prepared for after, um, after they're ready to do their part? I think that's a, a very great question. And as stated, this is an ongoing process, right? And um, this study is going until, well, not the study, but the evaluation of the folks who were um, in the clinical study is going on up until 2022. So, you know, if there's anything that looks um, concerning, you know, appropriate precautions will be made in that regard. But as of now, um, the general side effects are what you see when you, for a lot of us, when we get the flu vaccine, right? You'll have um, discomfort at the site of injury or the site of injection. Sometimes you'll have flu-like symptoms, um, which is like, you know, chills or a fever, but those generally subside on their own. And you can obviously take some painkillers and that will help with alleviating some of the issues with the pain or the flu-like symptoms that may present themselves. Now, there has been, um, and again, one of my things is about, um, dispelling misinformation. So there were some concerns about um, particularly two things that were um, concerning. So one of the things aside of those two things was that um, there have been some people that um, would have like um, uh, a, a kind of a adverse effect to the vaccine. Very small amounts right now, we're talking about like 30 something people out of the 40 million people that have been vaccinated. These people who have a history of um, aller allergic reactions to certain chemicals, you know, did present with those and were able to seek uh, medical care and um, given the appropriate prophylactics and we're, we're okay. Because as of, as of now, no one has died of 
receiving the vaccine, okay? So that's important to know. But the two um, other things that came up that were concerning was that there were a, um, a certain amount of people in um, the vaccine group that um, developed Bell's palsy. And there were a certain amount of people in the vaccine group that developed um, thrombocytopenia. And so Bell's palsy, for those of you who are not familiar, is when a person's experience temporary paralysis in their face, okay? It's a neurological condition, usually resolves on its own. It's not life-threatening. But um, when the FDA looked at the relative prevalence of um, Bell's palsy in the um, vaccination group compared to the general population, it met the um, normal um, incidence of it happening. And so it, they ruled it out as being something of concern. And similarly with thrombocytopenia, which is a disorder where you have abnormalities in your platelets. Your platelets are um, important cells because they help with your blood clotting, okay? And so you will want them to function properly because you could bleed out essentially if you don't have them functioning in the way that they should. And so there was um, some reports of that. Again, small numbers. And um, again, that correspond with the incidence of what they would happen in the general population. So that was ruled out as something of major concern. And so I wanted to highlight those two things because when you look on the social media, those are things that people like to point out that were concerning. But again, these were in very small numbers of people and um, they correspond to what you generally see in the larger population. But aside from that, uh, most individuals, if you're going to experience any side effects, it's usually just from the point of injection um, and sometimes flu-like symptoms that will resolve on themselves within the 48 hours post-injection. So post-vaccine, I should just plan to give myself some cozy time, get yeah. my little blanket, get some extra rest. <laughs> um, and I know that one of the things you've mentioned to me before is that those side effects are out also a really reaffirming signal that your body's doing exactly what it's meant to be and what it's being trained to do by the mRNA. Um, exactly. That's it's, it's, it's highlighting the immune response, right? It's saying that the immune response or your immune system is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's mounting uh, this response and it's protecting you against these, um, this potential foreign object. To point out is really important though, just as a matter of perspective, right? Are there going to be people who have some reaction of some sort? And the answer is yes, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we have to have the proper point of, of reference, right? What would naturally occur in the mm -hmm. population? Mm -hmm. Every year, people have all kinds of diseases and conditions that occur. Heart attacks, a number of things that will naturally occur, whether people have been vaccinated or not. So as our point of reference, what we don't want to do is latch on to every potential anecdotal piece of evidence where one person in one place had this one experience that may or may not actually be causally linked to being vaccinated and then say, oh, there's that, I'm not getting the vaccine for that reason, right? We want to look at the entire body of evidence, right? for every person that did get vaccinated that had some adverse effect, whatever that might be, however minor, there were how many people who did not? And as we're weighing you know, things in the balance to be able to say, well, if I don't get the vaccine, but I do get COVID, is it, would I wanna be lethargic for a couple of you know, hours or days or potentially hospitalizing on a ventilator for weeks, right? So it really is, a, from a matter of perspective, like 
looking at every piece of evidence that is presented to you, taking a comprehensive, a holistic view as you're making um, decisions about your personal health. And again, not just um, being turned off by anecdotal evidence, but the, the entire body of information available to you. I think that's so important. Okay, I know we're almost we're almost out of time. I could talk about this for several more hours with y'all, um, but I want to um, make sure to end with us thinking about one thing that you think people should remember as we go through this process of vaccination um, in the United States. So if you have your one takeaway that you want people to walk away um, remembering, um, and no pressure, just, just that one thing. Um, let's start off with uh, Dr. Jernigan Nowessi. Do you, do you feel like you can give us that takeaway? You are asking a psychologist to have one thing. <laughs> I mean, I think what, I know. Uh, right. What, uh, one thing that's really, I think, important for me, it goes back to my comments about, you know, communication is as folks are ideally taking information, consider the source, right, of the information. Um, I appreciated the conversation in terms of thinking about, you know, sort of the information from a relative perspective and, and in a broader perspective, right? So not just be one person on Facebook that posted, you know, a story, but take into consideration where you're getting your information um, because of all of the things that we talked about and for the folks giving the information, right? The flip side of that really take into consideration um, our efforts and being intentional about how we're communicating, what we're communicating um, and making it accessible for folks and communities that really need the information. Fantastic. How about you, Dr. Bradley? What would be your takeaway? Yeah, again, very difficult <laughs> to come up with, with one thing because there are so many important things. But um, I think I would say, I think I would say for people to remember that the vaccine does not contain the virus and those early testing phases um, have been completed. Fantastic. Dr. Dutton, take us home. What's your takeaway? So yeah, my, my take home is to wear a mask. It's very important that you use this mitigation technique because without it, you know, this virus is going to continue to spread and result in more mutations and it's going to lead us to a more complex situation. So yes, wear your mask and, you know, try to reduce risk as much as possible. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for your time and for the work that you do um, as a mother, as a researcher, as a psychologist, as a Black woman. This has been so educational for me. I feel like I walked away and learned so much and I feel much more confident. So I appreciate you taking the time and being willing to share your knowledge with um, me and with the community. So Thank you very much. And y'all stay safe out there, okay? You too. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Leading Everywhere, the Agnes Scott College podcast is sponsored by Agnes Scott College.